Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, everyone. Stakuya here, and I am actually with Nick, a.k.a. The Fat Electrician. hey Welcome into the podcast. Welcome into, well, or rather back, I guess, since you were on the previous episode for History of Everything, which the last one we did together was Battleships, and people love yeah. that. Uh, okay, I think that the most positive feedback I've ever gotten, like the, the compliments were directed towards two things. The first episode, despite its low quality, which was potatoes, even though know, like the audio quality was crap, but people loved it. And then that episode, they loved it. They loved hearing all the stories and all the different things to do with the varying ships. Yeah. Which, I mean, to be fair, we didn't just stay on battleships. And I guess that's part of my own fault is that it had to go into a number of other different ones and so i figured like okay okay perhaps battleships was too specific if we were going to talk about something again and go through all the crazy wild i'm going to use the term shit the shit that people have developed over the years from all different aspects whether we're talking blades guns cannons like anything that you can imagine is i mean it's bad shit it's insane so nick i have to ask off the off the get-go do you have a favorite weapon? A favorite weapon? You gotta no, no, I don't. You gotta give me categories. Okay, you just favorite. That that is how I am. No, whether someone's asking sword, spear, gun, like whatever it is. Okay, if you if you were gonna be given a gun, what it, what would that what would it be? Depends entirely on context. Okay, again, we're talking in terms of combat for what you're faced with. Like, what do you find to be the most? I don't know. We're talking about this in terms of practicality now at this point for like if you're in a combat situation, because, of course, it's going right. to vary depending on range, opponent, etc. Yep. Let's just say what story behind a weapon do you find the most awesome or fun then? Uh, World War One, the Americans use of the Winchester, the Winchester, mm, the trench sweeper. Yeah, correct. Yes. Oh, no, that's a good one. All right. So essentially what I did here is I I had a little kind of outline that just did a couple things that I wanted to touch upon, and I decided to break it down into three different categories. Essentially, you got awesome, weird, and dumb. And when you're talking weapons, uh, oftentimes a lot of that is involved with each other. Like there is really no set weapon that is just straight awesome or dumb or anything. Like it usually, it usually has a mix of both, either in the process of getting there or <laughs> something along the way. Like in the case of the um, the trench sweeper, of course. Like we, when you're talking about that Winchester, that you have the hilarious little fact about the Germans protesting its use as a, you know. A war crime because of unnecessary suffering. Meanwhile, they're the ones that introduced mustard gas and flamethrowers into warfare. Actually, I don't think they introduced mustard gas. No, they did. They did. It, the Germans Are you were sure. The, yes. Now, I mind got, you, I got corrected in my comments, and I, I was corrected because I made a whole video about this, and I was corrected, and it said actually the French introduced gas the first time, and then Germans just used it way more. There, it's it, it, this is where you get a little bit 
it gets a little bit odd. Okay, so you remember that a lot of this development is not occurring in isolated spots, right? It's occurring all over the place with different degrees. Like there was multiple nuclear programs. There was multiple chemical programs. There was multiple everything in different points in different warfare. So the Germans were the one to first really develop what we know of as the chemical warfare of World War One, the French did utilize some chemical warfare and ideas. But if we're talking the actual mass deployment of mustard gas and these kinds of that was Germany. That was Germany that did it. So okay. because it was a it was a German scientist, a chemist that specifically came up with the formula that made the classic thing that we know of as mustard gas and made several other things as well, if, if I recall correctly, because this was during a large stage of development between explosives, like when they were working with, you know, from fertilizer and after fertilizer with the nitrates developing into uh, uh, explosives, uh, artillery pieces evolving, and then this chemistry that was going on in the late 1800s going into the early 1900s, it was the German chemists that were largely doing this. Okay. So I mean essentially that's where their base is. Right. Now I I'm gotcha. curious about the specific example that is being brought up for the French though. I mean, I, I would look at it because I'm sure that there's something there that was done as part of a parallel program. But in terms of warfare, it was the Germans that mass used it first, like as part of a standard military practice. That makes sense. I get what you're saying now. <laughs> People nitpick in the comments. <laughs> if if there's anything that I can agree to in this, it is it is that the amount of times that I've had people come after me for things where it's like, oh, well, you didn't say this. Well, yeah, I, I had 48 seconds that I did right. this in. Like, excuse me, let me write my dissertation here, if you will, uh, in this 10 part TikTok series that I'm about to explain this very specific niche thing. Right. Oh. Actually, that that. That ammunition weighs 507 pounds, not 500 pounds. Like, oh, good. Well, that was important for the context of the overall message. Perfect. <laughs> or when you say, yeah, it's a 16 ton tank, you mean 16.2. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Good job. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that so, yeah, was. I'd, I'd, I'd pick the trench sweeper. What would you pick? In my case, I'm caught between two things, really. My if we're talking a gun, just in what I love the story of the most, I would say that the story wise is the 1911. I mean, it's 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 classic. Sure. It's literally something that was developed specifically in order to stop tribesmen who were so hopped up on religious fervor and drugs that they couldn't feel pain. And so they were immune to bullets in the sense that it would take like five or six shots from one of the uh, shit. What was the smaller round they were using? It wasn't the three out three. They were, it was, they, were um, they were using they were using 38 long Colt in their pistol. The 38 and, uh, long. That was your your. You're talking about the Mora Rebellion, right? Yes, the Mora Rebellion part right. is part of the Philippine uh, American Philippine War. It, yes, you know they they went into uh, the Moro Rebellion. Rebels went into combat with like tourniquets pre-placed on already. No. Yeah, that that was like a big part of the reason that they were hard to stop was they would like tightly wrap their hip joints and their uh, shoulders in in uh this like cloth before they went into battle so it had a tourniqueting effect so even if you shot him in the arm it it wouldn't really slow him down because they already had basically had tourniquets in place like that was another big part of why they invented the 1911 
damn okay no that that makes a lot of sense you got me going because uh like in my merch store right now i have a 1911 shirt for sale i've done three videos on the 1911 in the last month so i know all about it uh did, did have you heard of the thompson lagarde tests the lagarde test wait no uh this was this the initial test that when it when it fired like what was it six thousand rounds and without a jam or is this another uh, no, specific test so, so that that was the showdown to decide who was going to get uh who was going to get the contract for the u.s government mm-hmm. the thompson lagarde test is they didn't the 1911 didn't exist yet but they wanted to figure out what size of caliber the next service pistol needed to be because of the moro rebellion is this the cow so, story yes yes okay okay then for the audience this that is, is listening you got to tell oh that was just as a heads up the last time when we did the whole thing and i and i made that comment of like for the uss texas oh yeah no everyone knows that story it's such a common one do you have any idea how many angry comments and stuff that i got saying well i didn't know this story here and i don't know what you're all talking about right uh so yes go go ahead and tell it because i'm not yeah. i'm not going to interrupt that part again here like last time all right, so we've got the Thompson Lagarde test. Uh, basically, after the Moro Rebellion, like Steve just brought up, uh, the U.S. government needed a more stronger uh, caliber than the 38 Long Colt, and they basically went out. And what they their metric was is well, if it'll stop a cow, it'll stop a human. So they literally wanted to find the smallest pistol caliber that could kill a cow in a single shot, and. The results of that ended up being the 45 ACP round, which stands for automatic Colt pistol. It was uh, developed by John Moses Browning, the America's patron saint of hole punching. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it stands for automatic Colt pistol. But when you take into regard that it was basically selected for its ability to take down cows, it actually stands for anti-cow projectile. Um, <laughs> of course, of course, genius. And that's how they get right. mood down. Right, exactly. And uh, so after they figured out that it would kill a cow in a single shot, they wanted to see what it would actually do to a human person. And they would actually they were actually taking people that donated their bodies to science and they were shooting them with 45 ACP to see what it would actually do to a person, uh, (sighs) which is not not really what you expect when you donate your body to science. But, hey, this is America. You never know. No, no, that's just it. You never know. But that's the reality. So how much do you know about the um, the history behind that, like of donating your body to science and what would happen? Uh, Not a lot. Okay, so for the longest time, for centuries, people didn't know, or millennia, really, people didn't know how bodies worked, right? Like, and because of religion, whether it was in uh, Islam or Christianity, etc., which of course are the dominant religions in the West that were looking at making a lot of these advancements, you were not able to actually open up bodies, essentially run autopsies on them. It was a very specific people that were allowed to do so. You couldn't just do it for medical science because you were playing god it was an abomination like you weren't allowed to do this so people didn't actually know with the exception of specific select doctors and or surgeons of how the body actually worked or what it is that you would need to do so when this became more and more common and science was advancing far more this is where you started to see people run businesses that were obtaining bodies so 
in the early days of the Enlightenment period, when a lot of these you had these gentlemen scientists that they weren't just a geologist. They weren't just an anthropologist. They were a geologist, anthropologist, biologist, surgeon. Like they were eight different things in one because that's what people did. Like that's that's what you were. So you had all of these rich guys in universities that were trying to get access to bodies because they were trying to test and see, you know, what happened? Like, how do these bodies tick? Like what they were trying to advance science. So you had these universities that were paying these people for just bodies like that. They acquire. would acquire. Exactly. So yep. the initial thing that would happen is, of course, people would like you'd have these poor families that would donate their bodies to science or like, you know, their their relatives bodies to science because they would be paid money to get it the fresher the body the more money you got paid so because of that people were starting to grave robbing became more of a thing so immediately after someone would get buried they had to station guards because if you didn't within an hour of a person being buried you'd have grave robbers digging up their body and taking it to the university to sell and that was just like – it wasn't the family that was doing this. It would just be strangers that would be breaking into cemeteries and doing it. This is one of the reasons why cemeteries were heavily guarded in the 17 and 1800s. And Makes sense. After that, there were cases of people who were going in and murdering people specifically in order to sell their bodies because you could murder a traveler, get all of whatever goods they're carrying and just have that like any jewelry or anything like that and then you what do you have left over the body usually people get rid of the body you just sell it gross i know there was a case i can't remember the name of it you know what you know what while we're on here i'm gonna look it up it's like these two irish immigrants i think that were doing it hold on um ah oh, this is gonna bother me if i don't get it murder uh and sell bodies to science. Who who was it? The Irish murderer who donated William Burke. There it is. William Burke was this guy who essentially he owned a um, it, it's not an inn, but it's like one of those places where you have like long lasting tenants in in uh, in Scotland. And what he did is. When some poor people that were coming into the city doing stuff to find work, this kind of thing, he would one of them initially died from just a disease. He, since he owned the place, was able to sell the body because he now had ownership of it because the person had no family, discovered that this was actually a good way to make money and then proceeded to murder people who would show up to his place because they would get sick and die. And he was able to do that like several times before getting caught because, again, this was the poor in Scotland in the 1700s because no one was ever going to give a shit. No one was going to pay attention. I mean, it makes sense, though. Okay, that's a that's a long, long ass tangent, and I apologize. It's okay, but that's see that that's the kind of shit that I find just wild and interesting, but also horrifying when it comes to history. So, so why why the nineteen eleven though for you? I mean, why is it your favorite besides you're an American? It, it's because it's a goddamn beautiful. Just the aesthetic of it. It is yeah. a it is a powerful pistol that it 
you could dip this thing in the mud. You could throw it into water. You could do what it was. It's like the ultimate service pistol. It's rugged, but beautiful at the same time. It's one of those weapons that when you hold it in your hands, is just like it's literally power. Usually the problem with a lot of these powerful weapons is that they either have overly complex mechanisms or there's some other aspect to them that really will affect their performance, right? Like they don't perform well under duress because they're compensating for something for the power of whatever they're firing. Hey everyone, it's you here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Not the 1911. The 1911 is just pure FU energy in whatever direction you're pointing. Well, the 1911 is actually like the grandpa of pretty, pretty much. There's a couple exceptions that like Beretta made, but almost all modern pistols are based off of the 1911. Correct. Like I was actually looking into this more like the Colt 1911 was adopted on March 29th, 1911, which, of course, that's where, you know, the 1911 comes from. And then it wasn't until 1913 that the U.S. Navy Marine Corps also adopted it. But it was going everywhere. At the beginning of World War One, there were 68,000 pistols in service. But the demand for how many they actually needed because of how popular this was meant that the initial contracts that were only to, you know, the one company were being then granted to other manufacturers as well to also produce. But it, it performed so well that it's one of those few that they were not making a lot of regional changes to suit other people like there would be some stuff you know there would be external changes that would be made to make the the like shooting it easier if you had a smaller hand you know like a slightly smaller grip sights may be slightly altered to suit someone's taste but that core mechanic of the pistol was the same and it essentially inspired everything like all pistols coming after that were were looking at it like if 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 sorry if you're listening and you don't know much about guns if if you've ever seen a action movie where they fire the pistol you know the slide racks back you can see the little barrel sticking out if you actually look slow-mo that barrel uh it cants up like 15 degrees the barrel kicks up with it to help diminish the recoil that's actually called browning action and that was in the 1911 and that mechanical function of pistols comes from the 1911 and almost all pistols today obviously not revolvers but all like when you think of a 1911 style pistol where it takes a magazine and you you know rack the slide almost all of them run off of browning action the only one i can think of that doesn't off the top of my head is like the beretta px4 which uses a weird rotating action but almost all pistols are based off the 1911 and that's just it's just goddamn beautiful It, it really is the only the only major change that it made between like world war one and world war two was that its grip used to be it was wood like the initial thing was wood and then it became plastic because plastic was cheaper and they needed to produce a lot more of them 
Like right. that, that's literally it. It's just, huh, we need this cheaper because we need a hell of a lot more of this yeah, awesome they, gun. They they changed the safety at some point too. They added the safety on the back of the handle. But other, yeah, there's been very little changes to it. It's just um how many other guns know, can you say were literally people were still using a hundred years later as like a standard? Uh well, not only a standard, like if you don't know, uh the nineteen eleven um system or frame uh, is actually still extremely popular for actual uh, like competitive shooting, like competitive precision shooting. There's a lot of people that still run 1911s. Well, yeah, because it's mostly civilian now that does it as well, especially since um like the big issue they had was the, it was 45 ACP like that. That was what it was. But if you're looking at NATO and international supply chains they had to change it so that there would be something better suited you know the nine millimeter so that's where the nine millimeter variation of the like of the 1911 comes from but of course it's harder to do that with a separate gun which is one of the reasons why the u.s switched it out as the standard pistol for the beretta yeah there was a lot going on with that no america basically picked the m9 beretta over the sig for political favors what was one of the reasons what was what 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 is the story behind that because i know this was one of the reasons was specifically based off the caliber like looking at the ammunition but what what was what was the political issue because i may have missed that oh i'd have to look it back up but i I was looking into it for when i was going to do an m9 beretta video and uh like some people say it was a little bit cheaper but i mean it's America. It's got the biggest unhealth care system in the world. They don't really care if the pistols cost a little bit more. Uh, also, but basically, the mil spec testing was down to the SIG uh, P320 and the Beretta M9. And they ended up going with the Beretta because they wanted to improve their uh, their political standing with Italy at the time, basically. That makes a lot more sense it, it does i mean that's a natural thing that would happen my question then at that point is when people would say oh it's cheaper getting some additional guns is a hell of a lot cheaper than replacing the guns you have as a with a standard issue weapon that's completely new that's that's just one of those things where people say oh it's cheaper yeah but if you're going to you know order 50,000 more guns to get some more 1911s that may be a bit more expensive, like what, 20% more expensive? I don't know, just throwing out a number versus, hey, we're going to replace all 300,000 or something with a brand new gun. It's like you're you're going to end up spending a lot more money that way. Well, I mean, that's what they're doing now. They're switching everything. Well, at least for the army, if they're switching everything over, they already switched the Marines over. So they're getting all new service weapons now. <laughs> Honestly, I'm very curious to see what things are going to look like. But if we're looking at those newer guns, there's there's another one that I have that is a favorite. But this is for the exact opposite reason. This one is just beautifully ingenuitive, but also effing stupid because you can't there's no practical way to actually use it for a battlefield. Have you heard of a weapon called the Kultov? I have not. Okay, so the Kultov repeater was a repeating musket in the early 1600s. Uh I did you do a video on this is it it's not that uh it's not the compressed air one that Lewis and Clark nope, had is it? Nope, it's not okay. that one. 
I did do a video on it. I did do a video on it, but it's not that one. That's another one that I was thinking about adding, but that one is more of a that one was a specialist weapon that was better suited towards uh, either commando units or specifically for hunting or exploration versus what I wanted to focus on more of the military aspect. Like the only reason that I even included this one, despite its specialization, is because for it was the standard weapon for the Danish Royal Guard. Very few places would have it because you essentially had a couple elite units that would be equipped with it because there was no physical way that you would be able to equip an army with it because of how stupidly expensive it would be. Right. Yeah, yeah, I I actually saw this video that you did. I'm 90% sure now. Yeah. The gist of it, for those of you who don't know what it is that I'm talking about, if you've ever seen a lever action gun – like just one of those classic, think cowboys, lever action, pulling it out from the bottom. Imagine that, except instead of pulling out from the bottom, you are pulling the lever to the side. And what that's doing is you're pulling the lever out to the side is it's actually loading the gun with from two different magazines. In fact, some of these, it's actually crazy. Some of these guns in different variations had three magazines because the way that it worked is that the trigger guard was actually a lever that would operate the weapon when you would push and pull the trigger guard that mechanism would take a charge of gunpowder that was in the um, that was in the stock of the weapon and it would take a ball that was off to the side in another magazine and it would load it into the breech as you cock it that small carrier device would carry the powder from the magazine to the breech and to prevent the danger of flame reaching the powder magazine like that that's just how you would have to you know use it because it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a match lock mechanism it was a wheel lock the user only had to manipulate the trigger guard, just add some priming powder to the firing pan, and the weapon was ready to fire. But there was some even more complex models where there was no need to manually add priming powder. You could just use a third magazine that would also feed the priming powder automatically. Like, it's, you're talking a weapon that has three different magazines at some point, but this is the early 1600s, so in the time that it took to reload, you would be able to reload and fire anywhere between one to two seconds. We're talking a musket that was capable of firing 20 to 30 shots, not even that, 30 to 60 shots per minute, technically. I say technically because there's a lot of issues that would go into that for actually firing it. And then if anything happens to it, you're going to have to ship it all the way back to the original manufacturer to get it fixed. Holy shit. Yeah, it was the King Tiger of tanks, basically. It's like this big, beautiful behemoth. It's, it's just it's wonderful. But then one thing goes wrong and there's no way to repair it in the field. Like I'm not expecting some peasant in the 1650s to repair this weapon that costs more than their entire body is probably worth over the course of their life. Right. Like, it's just that's not how it would work at all. This gun, I think it was I can't even remember the price of it. The gist is, let's say you have an army of 100,000 men or so. I mean, not that big. We have an army of 30,000 men. The Royal Guard was the only one that could be equipped with this or else someone who was really rich. And so it was 100 guys. You'd have 100 guys with this weapon. That's how expensive it was. You couldn't afford to do anything more with it. And even then, they're the guard. You're not actually sending that into the field to use because if you send it out into the field to use and it gets broken or something else happens, that's way more expensive. It's kind of like a last ditch elite weapon just in case someone breaks in. Like that's it's 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 ridiculous. The, the mechanism on it. Um, how familiar are you with the 
with the different types of old mechanisms like match lock, flint lock, wheel lock, snap lock, etc. Not super. Okay. So match lock is the classic that we all think of. Like when you're thinking of the musket, you're t- thinking of a match lock. You have the vice grip that is holding a piece of flint or rather of steel. It strikes onto flint. This creates a spark. Spark falls into the priming pan that ignites the powder. It fires, right? Like that's the classic musket. That's what it is. The initial right. firearms that they were using were match locks, which literally means you put a lit match and there was a hole in the gun. So or on with the priming pan. So when you pulled the trigger, that lit match would hit the powder and that would light it on fire. The next evolution was wheel lock and what wheel lock did is it had a kind of spring mechanism so you would wind up the wheel and then when you pull the trigger it would release the spring all at once the spring would spin rapidly causing the flint to strike it's kind of like flint lock except more complex because it used a wound spring and that would create the sparks that would fire the issue was because they didn't like how do i even put this Flint lock is more simple and easier than wheel lock. It's weird that they made a more complex system first before they so, simplified it. I'm really sorry to cut you off. But Go for it. I got, I got asked. So I went and I, d- I did the unsubscribe podcast down in San Antonio. Like they flew me out for it. Yeah. And uh, one of one of the guys that runs it is a big uh, he's a big YouTuber and he primarily does uh, reactions to live police body cam footage. And he wanted me to collaborate with him on a video. And you're you're talking about the spinning magazine reminded me of this. It, he wants to do a video on the history of a gun called the American 180. Are you familiar with this at all? The American 180. No, hold on. Let okay, me look at so, this. Ba- basically, for those of you that are, that are listening, if, if you think of the classic Thompson, uh, the Tommy gun with the big barrel drum like the mobsters have in the movies, oh. it looks, it's, it's, it's basically that gun, but they took the round barrel clip and they put it on top and then they flipped it on its side. So there, there's this like big saucer sitting on top of this Thompson machine gun. And instead of it being 45 ACP like the Thompson was, it's chambered in 22 LR. That is shit. And it, 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 the drum for 22 LR for that gun holds like 200 and like, actually, I think it's 180 rounds. That is, is what it holds. That's why they call it the American 180. I, I'm just going to say this on paper. That is terrifying in practice. That is shit. So no, listen to this shit. Do you want to know why it was originally designed and what it was used for? For what? It was given to law enforcement as a less than lethal option. Less than lethal. Wait a goddamn minute. If you, yeah. you okay, firing a 22 <laughs> LR into someone's leg, sure, fine, I get that. But if you have an automatic weapon that is firing 30 rounds in someone's general direction and six of those hit, it doesn't matter that it's 22 LR. Wow. That's going to, bro. It's got a, it's got a firing rate. It's like 800 rounds per minute. Like, it's obscenely Holy fast. Holy fuck, no. I looked it up. Like, I just looked it up. It's not 800, dude. It's 1,200. It, yeah, sorry. It's 1200. goddamn 1,200. What the Bro, fuck? We, we were, we, for the video, I'm going to do the math and see how many bullets it would shoot in the time it, it takes to say stop resisting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God damn. 
it, it's a ridiculous. And then, like, if you want to get crazy, they make a double-barreled version that takes two drum magazines. It's called the American 360. Hold up. That sounds like something that would be mounted onto the back of a pickup truck that is just as some gangster is running or drive-by on. That's what you'd see. It, that's pretty right. much taking a flat gun, miniaturizing it, turning it into a machine gun, and sticking it on the back of a truck. Like, that's literally all that would be. 100%. <laughs> God damn it. But it's that, no, while we're talking about weapons, that's really no different than uh, are you familiar with the M2 Stinger from the Pacific in World War II? I am. I am familiar with because the Stinger was oh. a bastard. The Stinger was yeah. a bastard that they put together, but it was, ended up being beautiful. That's the Franken-Gat. They were actually looking into like fully developing it and making it an American standard issue weapon. And then the war ended. So they just kind of dropped it. I mean, to be fair. As, as they were discovering later on, while a fast fire rate on paper seems awesome, there's a reason why most didn't do it past a certain point, with the exception of stuff done for aircraft, because right. it's a huge waste of ammunition. I mean, that was the problem with the MG42 for the Germans. They preferred using the MG40 because the MG42, a.k.a. the buzzsaw, was something that would bleed through so much ammunition. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. That it, it, it wasn't practical. Like it was it was useful. You had to fire it in bursts in at targets. And when you're firing a weapon like that in bursts, what it's capable of, why try to get it to fire faster if you're not going to be able to do it? Because you do any kind of sustained fire with it, it's going to A, melt the barrel, and B, melt your ammunition. Right. I don't know. It's crazy. What uh? So we've we've done we've done uh, we've done gunpowder weapons. What about not gunpowder weapons? What's your favorite? <sighs> My favorite is probably the Udemy because it's just it's so. I, I have a lot of weapons. I love and just a base sword. If you're looking at it, the Flamberge because it's so goddamn niche. It is the anti-sword sword. You know what I'm talking about with that, right? Like, you know, the, the wavy sword. Uh, I think so. Okay, so think of where's, this. Where does that originate from? The Flamberge is just, it's just a style. So there were multiple places that had it. It's primarily in France and Germany, but Germany is the one that's famous for it because they would have Flamberge Zweihandes. So massive two-handed blades. Think of it like pike and shot tactics, right? You have these massive men carrying massive weapons of these swords that were bigger than they were. And the swords had a kind of wavy pattern that would be going up the blade. And the reason why they had that design is that it was designed to go up against other, say, pole arms and blades, where when you made a connection, if you tried to parry, A, there is so much weight behind that sword when you swing it that... It's very difficult to parry in the first place, but if you do manage to parry it, as the blade gets ridden down the other blade, it will create vibrations that will jar your hands and make you drop your weapon. Huh. It's not going to cut the best. It will still cut. It will still have a lot of power, but... 
But the whole reason for this blade is to fuck with someone else's blade. That is literally its entire purpose. It kind of reminds me of a, I don't, I suck at pronouncing Japanese words, but is it the uh, Kanabo? Uh, The Kanabo. Yeah. Yeah. The Samurai Club. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's what that reminds me of was specifically designed in order to crush armor because armor did develop in Japan over time. It was never as good as what you saw with, say, European steel, but they didn't have that. Like there were a couple places that did get it, but it was ridiculously expensive and hard to make because you don't have nearly as much supply. That being said, if you stack enough lamellar on top of each other like that will resist and you're not going to want to use a katana against that because katanas may have an edge, but they would also chip. So. The Conable was it was a great heavy armor destroyer, though the craziest thing about that, and I didn't really realize it until doing more research into fighting techniques. Do you know how they actually fought with that? Like the two handed swords and the Conables, like these other two handed weapons. Mm -mm. You fought like a dance. Like that's that that doesn't surprise me. That's how you did it, because it's all about the force you would keep. And I don't mean like Star Wars. That's going to sound weird when I say it like that. You needed to keep the force of your swing going. So when you look at video games and you see people using this big two handed sword, they start it from their shoulder and they just uh, swing and then they put it back to their shoulder up again and then they swing again. Yeah, hell no. That's not how those things were used at all. The way that you used these massive two-handed weapons, whether it was the club, whether it was the Zweihander, whether it was other things, is that you would you you would spin with them effectively like a dance because you wanted to keep the force of your previous swing going. And this is why, despite not having a shield or even really as heavy of armor, these Zweihanders and other weapons were anti-crowd control. They were crowd control weapons. So you'd have one guy with one of these weapons fending off three or four guys from either direction because they're just spinning around bashing everyone. Damn. Speaking of misconceptions, uh, I think I saw you did a video on it about how... Like in video games and stuff, they always show the archers in like medieval times being like the smaller dudes. Yeah, like very lith, very, you know, elven pretty much like what you see with Lord of the Rings. Right. Whereas like that's not true at all because a war bow had like a hundred and fifty pound draw and you had to be jacked to even pull that thing back. Correct. So have you seen the guy on TikTok that is like shooting traditional war bows? I don't think I have. I've oh, seen a number God. of the trick shot bowmen, but I've not seen that one. No, no, this dude is firing straight up old school, like 90 plus pound war bows. And he d- he does it all like shirtless, obviously, but like his whole channel is basically to show his progression as he works up to firing like a 150 pound traditional style war bow. Ooh. And like you can you can see this dude progressively. The dude is just shredded. His upper body and his back muscles are so overdeveloped from being able to pull back that bow. I saw it. I should have sent it to you, but I, it looks incredible. I'll have to find it. Do it. My wife for Father's Day got me a uh, membership to go to the gym. So, yeah, I have not been to a gym since I was essentially in college. I just I haven't. I've I've been way too busy with uh, I say busy. Part of it is my own laziness and exhaustion and other shit for it here. It's stupid. I know. But it's me making excuses. I I have not been to one since I was in college. I worked desk jobs. I, I gained back like 30 pounds from where I was at. And 
all of my muscle was gone, essentially. So I went to the gym for the first time in four years, I think, or five years. Not yesterday, but the day before. And I did chest. Holy shit, that hurt. And all I could think was, damn, I really wish I was doing some weapons training or something with this because that that does sound awesome. I would love to be able to reach that point. Good for you. That's awesome, though. Yeah, that's uh, that's like the whole reason I started doing TikTok is because I got hurt at the gym. <laughs> oh, wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. I tore my pec off the bone like you see in all the viral Whoa. videos where the muscle explodes. That's uh, I did that. And then I was like, if you watch like I have probably my first five to ten videos you can actually see on my shoulder i have a sling on and uh yeah i was filming my first 10 videos while i was in a sling because i was off work and bored and then my my page blew up and now i'm here that is dear god dude i just told dumb stories on the internet like (laughs) i i I, my wife got too tired of me talking so she told me to tell other people so i did that Oh, but now I mean, joke's on her. We got big enough, so now she's stuck in here with me for at least an hour or two every week in which I have to tell stories to her. So, ha, ha. joke's on her. That's <laughs> really funny. Oh, but I started this um on the weapons note. Do you know what the Udemy is? Uh, Weren't we just... No, I don't. Sorry. It's, it's an Indian whip sword. Uh, is, is that the one where like it's a blade, but it's like a, a very thin laminate blade? Kind of, kind of, because there's multiple I, variations. I know exactly what you're talking about. That thing's crazy. It is. So when I had to do the research on it, and I'm going to say it's part of the martial art known as uh, Kalari Payatu. I'm probably butchering it. Some guy did a video where he tagged me in it to explain the first time I ever talked about this for what it's like. Um I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember or find it anymore, but I'm pretty sure that it was Kalari Payatu. The gist is that is possibly the first martial art ever, which is crazy to think about it. But the first martial art is probably Indian. It's probably that one. And it's it's a mixture between standard like martial arts for actual weaponry and movements and these kinds of things, but also mixed with religion because it's very closely tied with Hinduism and the Urumi is the last weapon that you are allowed to do. You have to master every other thing first before you can because of how easily it would be to just F someone up with this. Huh. The the um because it is a whip sword. It, it's a it's a flexible sword that depending on the length, like some of them are shorter. I've seen some that were only around like two feet, which is not very long at all. But then Others were crazy. I mean, we're talking 150 centimeters or like five feet long. So imagine just like a five feet long metal blade whip that you're just whipping around. And the way that they fight, if you go and you look a video of this on YouTube to anyone listening, I highly recommend that you do. We're talking guys who are going and doing all these kinds of spinning, jumping, kicking motions. They have one of those small little shields that almost looks like a buckler that's on their uh, arm. And they're just dancing and spinning around each other, just whipping each other like what you would see with um. You ever as a kid took like a towel and maybe to your like brother or someone or like a friend and you were just trying to beat each other with a towel as you were jumping around each other? Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. But it's a metal blade. <laughs> yeah. I, so I think the first time I ever saw that was on that old Spike TV show of uh, Deadliest Warrior. Oh, I think it has been on there. It has been. I'm almost positive. That's where I've seen it. They probably showed that one. But are you aware of the Sri Lankan variation? 
Uh, I'd have to see it. Okay, okay, hold on. I'm going to send you a picture right now just so that you can see it. So for those of you who are not familiar with it, Sri Lanka has a variation of the Urumi that essentially looks like a metal feather duster. It. How the hell do I, I got it? This? I'm looking at it. Oh, right you now. pulled it up right now? Yeah, it's like four to five laminate blades on one handle, so it's kind of like a like a metallic flogger. <sighs> Kind of. Some of these would have up to 32 blades on one of them. That's insane. Yeah. And they were usually dual wielded. So we're talking 64 blade whips with a guy who's just dancing around you. (laughs) Right. And you can't like even if you block with a shield, it'll curve around it. Yeah. Now, mind you, now mind you, the, the, I say this weapon is awesome. It's also shit in terms of, say, general warfare, like as a martial art weapon, it's kind of insane. But if you look at something like that, it's the weapon would mostly be ineffective in real combat against any kind of heavily armored opponent. Like, it's not penetrating any it, its cutting power would be weaker naturally because it doesn't have a hard surface to kind of hold it against it to cut. And simultaneously, it's not going to penetrate because. It, it, it's it's a wiggly one. It, it's a, literally a wiggly, flexible blade. It's it's not going to be able to stab. So against unarmored opponents or just to scare the shit out of people. Awesome. Uh, against anyone who has any decent amount of armor in any shape or form. It's not doing shit, but it's just such an interesting, awesome little thing that I find crazy. So, you know what? Like. A modern weapon that's, I mean, I say it's kind of like this. They're only similar in the fact that they're both completely ridiculous. Are you familiar with the Wasp combat knife? I am. I am. Uh, That thing's got to be terrible. It's, hold on. The Wasp combat knife is not actually allowed in combat, though. It's a war crime. No. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I mean, if not allowed and allowed and got away with it like I mean, well, yes a war crime potato potato <laughs> i mean it was developed specifically to uh defend yourself against sharks and other right. large creatures yeah uh for, for for those of you that don't know the wasp combat knife looks like any other normal combat knife except there is a button on the handle and inside the blade that you can't see there is a metal tube that runs from the tip of the knife into the handle and inside the handle you can screw the hilt the bottom of the knife off and take a small co2 cartridge like you would use inside of a not a paintball gun but a, like a bb gun like an co2 cartridge for a bb gun you can put that in there and twist the cap back on and when you press you can stab it into something press the button and it's going to blow a basketball sized air pocket inside of whatever you just stabbed with a knife i've seen people use it like when you look at one of those things on uh, when they test it against watermelon and that kind of thing i've seen the videos yes so stick in a knife all right it's a knife Maybe it has a little bit of blood. Maybe it has a little something trickling out of it. You hit the button and the watermelon just explodes. Yep. It's holy shit. Now that thing is terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely awful. So if that is terrifying, I have to ask you, what is the worst weapon? What's the worst thing? Like, what's the dumbest thing that you think? Like, God damn it. I hate this. This doesn't. Worst as in least effective or worst as in I would don't want to be hit with it. I was I was thinking least effective, but what what would be the what would be the most terrifying? I don't know. The wasp is up there. Anything with radiation terrifies me. Um, 
I'm trying to think of uh, the most inefficient weapon or the most ridiculous inefficient Cause, weapon. Because if we're talking terrifying, honestly, you just look at the Davy Crockett. Like, I'm sure you probably covered that here yeah. before, but like for Davy we're um, um, because you're talking about putting a nuclear bomb in the hands of a couple enlisted dudes. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it's it's legitimately the fat boy from Fallout. It, it literally 100 percent on the back exactly of a Jeep. And I think what they ran the tests. It was probable, not definite, probable that they would even be able to get their vehicle away by the time that it detonates. Yep. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. It's... Yeah. God damn it. It's just... If if you could define an orc weapon from 40k, that and the pangen drum would probably be it. Yeah. For sure. Now, what's what's the dumbest one? Uh, I don't know that it was actually officially a weapon, but I, I think the whole brown note concept was pretty stupid. America spent millions of dollars in researching that. Oh, the uh, brown note. Yeah, the for if you don't know what the brown note is, the brown note is basically like they hired professional musicians and uh, frequency experts, people that were experts in electricity, electricity. Like they hired all these different experts, and the theory was, is when you have something at the same frequency, if you can generate the same frequency, you can make anything else residing at that same frequency explode. That's how like a singer can make a, a crystal glass explode because it can create that frequency with their voice and it makes a, the crystal reverberate and then it explodes. Well, they wanted to be able to do that with the human intestinal system and it wouldn't explode, but it would just make you shit your pants. <laughs> so basically the U S government wanted to have a frequency emitter that they could blare into the battlefield and make everybody lose control of their bowels. And it's referred to as the Brown note for obvious reasons. Oh Lord. See, the crazy thing is that that is based, as you said, it's kind of based on a real thing where there have been a variety of different experiments where people were trying to determine what would happen with different effects from different sounds. There was the actual reality of people being able to break a glass by singing the the what was it, like the 50s and the 60s were wild with all the shit that they were experimenting. With. Like the hell the 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 CIA experimented with, you know, LSD. And other kinds of stuff. One of the techniques they had, um, and I know I need to do a whole thing on Castro and what they tried to do. They didn't just try to assassinate him. At one point in time, they tried to lace his recording studio where he did all of his radio stuff with LSD because they knew they weren't going to be able to kill him there. But they thought that if they could make him right before a live broadcast go absolute high as shit and just start incoherent rambling that it would destabilize the government because people would see that he was weak I, the cia has done so much crazy stuff like if you start reading into like all the different ways they tried to assassinate fidel castro or 
Like some of the stuff the CIA is like even considered doing is absolutely insane. God, no, it really is. There's so many different things. Are you familiar with, in, in my opinion, from what I've seen, this is the worst sword ever. And it was actually something that was used back during the American Revolution by the British. It's the British 1796 Spadroon. Well, I'm pulling it up. <laughs> <clears throat> It's like S-P-A-D-R-O-O-N. Spadroon. All right. What's uh, what's the deal with it? I'm okay. looking at it. So on the surface, it doesn't really – it looks like a normal sword, right? Like there, yeah, there's nothing kinda. really wrong with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is where this gets really stupid because this is arguably the worst blade to ever exist as part of a standard infantry or officer weapon. So before 1786 – British officers were required to carry called a they were required to carry something called a spontoon and a spontoon is like a half pike like it's a cross between a pike and a halberd and that was issued early on as a replacement for those sticks or uh, those batons that people would carry to as kind of a, a staff symbol of their office but in the 1700s there was literally no point in having one of these because you no one was really wearing armor at that point anymore. Like, it just, you didn't need a halberd. So there was no point in carrying that. So instead, as a kind of defense against cavalry and also as just a general useful infantry weapon, they replaced this half pike with, you know, a, a sword, right? Well, right. it was fucking terrible. It was very poor in its design. It had how, – how do, how do I even begin to explain this? Okay, so it's a straight-backed. It's a straight-bladed, flat-backed weapon, single-edged, light sword. Emphasis on light. Now, you're supposed to be able to cut and thrust with this thing, and on the surface, it doesn't look like it's bad. It looks completely normal. But they managed to take it and completely fuck with it. The hilt that you can see there, that is a small sword hilt. That is something that was designed specifically for things like rapiers, these light weapons whose purpose was for dash and thrust weapon like that that's what it was it was a light weapon whose purpose was to serve as an extension of your body so because the hilt was shorter this didn't allow for a really good grip that you could use to cut very well okay so you can still cut with it which doesn't seem like it's a problem but the blade that was on it was so light and flexible that the blade when moving to cut had a tendency to bounce off of unarmored skin. I'm not talking someone who's wearing a thick coat. I mean, literally, if you were naked from the chest up and someone slashed you with this sword across your chest, there is a 50 50 chance that it's literally going to bounce off your skin. It was that light because it was so flexible. If you went to thrust with it, it might just bend. Like you've ever seen when people are dueling with those um, little like fencing blades yeah, and yep. they bend. Imagine that. <laughs> but it's a oh, full size sword and it just bends like out of Looney Tunes. It's awesome. I'm really happy that military grade is not a new concept. Nope. Nope. It's always it's it's always been a thing. It really has. But amongst all of these issues, you can still use it to kind of defend yourself, right? It's still a metal stick. So that means you can at least block someone else's weapon, right? I, 
I, I guess. <laughs> also probably not going to happen. The reason for that was, do you see the hilt on there? How it looks like a, it's like it's called a clamshell hilt, which you can probably see why, because it kind of looks like a clamshell. It looks like an oyster that has its mouth or sorry, the uh, not mouth. What would be the term would be the mouth? Is that what it's called? Like the mouth of the oyster, like when it's just open? I think so. OK, so that clamshell design, the reason why it's there is because it was meant it's put in there by hinges so that when the sword is at rest, when it's on your side, the hinge folds down so that it doesn't rub against your clothing. Because you got to think if you have a big guard and you have a sword on your hip, that handle and the um, the guard is going to be rubbing against your hip a lot. Right. Right. But if it folds, it's not going to do that. That seems fine. The issue was the hinge was so weak because it's it's a hinge. It's literally a hinge in the 1700s. It's not made out of the strongest material. It was brass. So if you came down and some and you block someone's sword and their sword slid along your blade down to that hinge, it was probably just going to break it. So the guard on your sword would break and either send bent jagged metal into your wrist or would just cause their sword to go right down and cut your arm. Ugh. The entire thing was utter shit. There is a quote. I literally pulled a quote from this from Captain Mercer of the Royal Artillery at Waterloo, who commented, nothing could be more useless or more ridiculous than the old infantry regulation sword. It was good neither for cut nor thrust and was perfect encumbrance. Literally, it was just the perfect dead weight in foot artillery. When away from headquarters, we generally wore dirks instead of it. So they would throw away their swords so they could use a goddamn dagger <laughs> because that's that awesome. was better <laughs> that's hilarious it's somebody true. had to get that government contract holy shit i mean speak government contracts have done stuff like that i mean the m16 had an initial horrible horrible launch because of all its shit with vietnam but the canadians had it worse they, or i say they had it worse their whole thing was an utter failure with the introduction of the ross rifle I don't know anything about the Canadian ones. I've talked to some tunnel rats from Vietnam that I've interviewed, and they hated the M16. Yeah, a tunnel rat's entire existence is crawling into a goddamn mud hole. Well, uh, no, yeah. they, were, like, <laughs> they were also like point men and shit, too. And they're like, I, I legitimately had my mom mail me my Mossberg 500 and a bunch of shells. And he's like, I th- left my M16 in my tent. And he's like, I straight up ran point in jungle patrols with my hunting rifle from home my hunting shotgun from home i feel like considering the brush and you don't necessarily know where you're shooting where someone is hiding a shotgun actually sounds very effective because it's not like you're aiming at someone a hundred yards away you're not going to be able to hit that through the trees they were saying that the m16 he's like i could he's like i have watched tracer rounds ricochet off of grass like shit in the jungle he's like i've watched a trace around hit a bush and ricochet like he's like they he's like they were terrible so yeah all right 16s were not that great (laughs) that it's not exactly it's kind of similar but it's it's for a different reason or issue so m16 obviously had a lot of issues in vietnam because a it's construction in the first place and b because with the environment it was not a weapon that was suited to the environment of vietnam like it would just get dirty and stop working it's not the ak right so in world war one which was very different from previous wars you had trench warfare trench warfare was very dirty very muddy it caused a lot of issues 
that is what created a problem with the Ross rifle, just like what you saw with the M16. The idea of it was that it was going to be a Canadian rifle like Canada was going to supply its troops. It was going to supply its own weapons. It was going to supply everything. It was going to be a point of pride for Canada. Problem was the gun was it was a terrible basic infantryman weapon. Now, mind you, mind you, the Ross gun, it's actually preferred by snipers to this day will use like a Ross. Like they are incredibly accurate, good weapons. They're so precise. The problem is for a general infantryman, if you're in conditions that is not good conditions, any kind of issue with dirt or anything happens, the whole thing's going to fail because it was so perfect in the way that it was constructed and its mechanism was more complex that anything got into it, it would just stop. It was just completely, it was susceptible to jamming from dirt and dust. It was very finicky about the quality of its ammunition. You, There was this thing where you were supposed to be able to use the ammunition between the Canadian guns and the British guns, but the, the ammunition was manufactured so precisely in Canada that the Ross could only use the Canadian ammunition because if it was used using the British ammunition, it would just fail. Like it just, it just, it wouldn't work because it was very carefully machined. In addition to that, the whole mechanism was so complex that it, it had a tendency when that something could break. Okay. You fix it. Fixing it was kind of hard in the first place, but it was so easy to misassemble it back together because the bolt would fit in the rifle and a chamber it, like, it, sorry, how did I even phrase this? The bolt would fit in the rifle. It would fire around. Everything would seem to be chambered correctly. But if you put it to, back together in the wrong order, there was no safety to stop the bolt from slamming back, which would cause the bolt to slam back into the face of the person that was firing the weapon. Perfect. Like, imagine, imagine you're a sniper. You are holding something right up to your cheek. And then that bolt with all of the force behind it fires into your face, breaking your uh, cheekbone face, breaking your face. Dear God. (laughs) Like by 1915, they just the Canadians just threw away their guns and took the Lee infield. The Canadians authorities were so mad. They were trying to issue citations to where, you know, you were going to get in trouble if you did it. But the men were like, no, fuck it. We're not going to do this. Like, there's a quote where this Canadian officer said, it is nothing short of murder to send out men against the enemy with such a weapon. Which, I mean, to be fair, that's kind of World War One as a whole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For a lot of things. Oh, my God. I had a... Uh, what did I say in my last video? I, I said that... Oh, I, I was asking, like, how come, you know, so many, like, famous, like, war heroes with ridiculous stories? Because I was talking about the guy that shot down the the fighter, uh, Japanese fighter pilot with a 1911 pistol. Oh, right, right, when he was uh, parachuting. Right, so I was talking about him, and he's from Texas, and I was like, it's always somebody or something from Texas. So I was like, the USS Texas from Texas, and then it was Audie Murphy from Texas, and then I talked about uh, Lafayette Gene Poole. Uh, they called him War Daddy. He's the guy that they based the character from Fury off of mm. in World War II. Some dude had this big argument about how Fury isn't based off Gene Lafayette Pool. It's based off of the British experience during World War One. Like in what? 
I, Hanks? I, yeah, I was like, I, I could definitely tell by all the trenches they went over. And like, just, I don't know. People are ridiculous. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Dear God. If you've never seen Fury, like they even call Brad Pitt War Daddy. Like that's his call sign in the whole movie. And that was Lafayette's code sign also was War Daddy. And he, this guy's like, no, it was about the British in World War One. I. I was like, I, I don't even know what to say about that. You, you get a lot of these who are the military nuts. Let me tell you from my experience. While military nuts have been crazy, considering how I cover stuff from all over the world, it is every time I cover anything to do with, say, an Islamic figure or anything, immediately my comments just turn into Shia Sunni fighting. Or if I cover something like one of the biggest contentions I ever had was the origin of coffee. It sounds so dumb, but coffee either arose out of Ethiopia or out of Arabia and more than likely arose out of Ethiopia. When I said that, holy shit, the amount of people out of the Middle East that got so angry was that that was that took me by surprise. Also, at the same time, I did not actually realize just how many um, legit neo-Confederates there are. When I did a video on what would happen if uh, if the South actually won the American Civil War. They're on YouTube. Uh, and holy shit, literally tens of thousands of them came out of the woodwork. And I, I did not realize there was that many. Oh, God. I You'd be surprised if you say anything on the Internet and think it's a safe opinion. You'd be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's just how it goes. Holy crap. OK, let's see. We've talked about the dumb. We've talked about the awesome. What about weird? Probably just, yeah, just something that you wouldn't expect to work or just seems so off, but then it actually does something. Because, like, I know what mine would be. Mine would be the Vespa, the Vespa tap, the literal gun mounted Vespa. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yep. Like, I did some research into that because I thought, like, oh, I've always followed the meme, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought, like, ah, yeah, this it seems like it would be pretty effective, but also it seems so dumb. And like, no, the Vespa was stupidly popular here across Africa. So when French force special forces were using it, they could do something like one hundred and twenty three miles in a day on it. And mind you, that's one hundred and twenty three miles 
on a Vespa, when they would drop one of these things, they didn't just drop one. They dropped them in teams of two. They would carry these little carts that would be behind them that you could store extra ammunition and stuff. Think of it like a little one-wheeled cart. Like, um, you ever get a U-Haul and you know how on the back of the pickup truck, they have those little uh, ones that you can hook to the trailer of it? Yeah. Think of it like that, but smaller, hooked to the back of a Vespa, just loaded down with ammunition and rounds and shit. It's a goddamn Vespa going through the desert. So Okay, I... I, I know mine. Go ahead. Continue. Okay. Like people, they thought it was weird in the beginning because it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. I could only achieve like 40 miles per hour eventually, but no, it was ridiculous. They were able to produce these things so cheaply, despite the fact that each one had a 75 millimeter gun on it. So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about and who don't know what a Vespa is, a Vespa is like, it, it's a moped basically. And so the, the the French had a moped that had a in the seat was a cannon, a 75 millimeter M20 cannon that went from the seat through the front and stuck out like two feet in front of the Vespa. It was it was a recoilless rifle. This was a weapon that was capable of penetrating four inches of armor at 7000 yards. And it's on a goddamn Vespa. But but because of the way that it's designed, it had almost no recoil. That is, it was a gun that you could have a squad of special forces ride it around and I'd set up an ambush point and any little armored group that is coming through or a like or unarmored, like any vehicles, anything that is coming through, they could just take it out and immediately get away. And since it's on a Vespa and they're looking for a tank that just took them out. Nope, they're gone. It was also used as an artillery piece to take out armored, uh, not armored, uh, fortified positions. <laughs> like it's just it's goddamn ridiculous it's goddamn and 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 the best part about all of this is that it was cheap each one only cost around five hundred dollars would you compare that to a tank for what it could actually do it's that same situation of like you're seeing these anti-tank weapons taking out stuff in ukraine where a you know two twenty thousand dollar or two hundred thousand dollar weapon can take out a ten million dollar tank it's just so cost effective. But the big easy, I say big easy, the big thing that made it so easy was that after World War II, there were so M20s, so many M20s that were laying around that all of them just got repurposed into this shit. Like they didn't have to build a gun because they just went, hmm, we have all these M20s laying around. Oh, I know. Let's just remove the gun and slap it on a moped. <laughs> so <laughs> I was. It. I was gonna say the Micklick, but your uh, your Vespa talk reminded me about the Volkswagen Bug. Wait, the Volkswagen Bug, like, like the actual car, or you mean like the yeah. stuff that the Germans did in it, like when they were oh, making no, the armored like, vehicles? No, 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 the, the the regular ass car. So, like, if if you know much about World War II, like the the backbone of the German economy was the Volkswagen Bug. Yeah, like that was one of like. You know, his like it was the thing that propped up the whole economy was they made that Volkswagen bug. They made it ultra affordable. Everybody got one. Yeah. What most people don't know about it is that that vehicle was designed by the government and it it was ultra reliable and it was very overbuilt. As many and, German things are. Right. But when you look at the actual chassis and the body of the vehicle, 
it it's overbuilt to the point that it was specifically designed to be able to handle having like a 50 caliber size heavy machine gun mounted to it and be able to hold it and sustain itself and not crumble under firing. And like, there's a whole, like, I don't want, I don't know if it's necessarily conspiracy, but it's, it's highly theorized by like structural engineers and stuff that they actually invent, invented and designed the Volkswagen bug on purpose to be able to do that, to be able to convert all these vehicles into war vehicles if they needed to. So it's, it's the Volkswagen was the original pickup mounted machine gun. Basically it it was the OG Toyota Hilux. Yeah. What the God? What? Yeah. Like, like obviously not anymore, but like the, the ones that were first built back then, the chassis and suspension were overbuilt to the point that a lot of structural engineers think that they specifically designed them to be able to handle heavy machine guns being mounted to them. That is honestly, that that's kind of hilarious. It, it it fits with the dark history of Volkswagen, which a lot of people yeah. don't realize it. But uh, the, the reason Volkswagen is as big as it is today is specifically because the entire company was built using slave labor during World War Two. Yep. Like that's that's where all the cars like that's where it comes from. That's where its prominence came for all its factories being built and constructed is that it was all for the war effort. And they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were using slaves in concentration camps to make these uh to make these cars. Super not great. Yeah. <laughs> Dear God, that's just. <laughs> well, yeah, most people don't know that. No, that actually that is that is honestly hilarious. Ah, damn, I'm trying to think. What, what would another one be? It's kind of more dumb than anything else because it doesn't work. But I think I think I want to make this my last one. I think so. Um. So we're looking at just weapons and because we're looking for stuff that also is protective. The Volkswagen, you said, was designed to be able to also uh, not crumple under fire. Right. Right. Okay. so it was a shield. There is a shield that was when they were first trying to develop guns properly for the battlefield. it, It wasn't designed to be bulletproof. It was designed to be able to mount a heavy machine gun to and the suspension and chassis of a Volkswagen. Bug and that it wouldn't would buckle under it. it. OK, right. yeah. Uh, OK, I get what you mean, because what I was going to bring up is that in the 1500s, they developed a sh- gun shield. There was a lot of really yep. weird, innovative stuff that people were trying to do. And I, have yep. you seen that stuff that Henry VIII had? Yeah, I have. It's pretty crazy. Oh, God, dude, the thing is so it's stupid. It, it's like if you just made one as a prototype test, I don't understand why they thought that would be continue to be a good idea. It's only ideal under certain circumstances. So for those of you who don't know what I'm is that I'm talking about back in the 1500s, and this is one of the things they discovered in a series of shipwrecks, is that Henry VIII's bodyguards, his elite units was equipped. They had a a gun shield where it was a round steel shield over a wooden frame that had a gun sticking out of a center. If you've ever seen a Viking shield and you see uh, the boss, that round circular part that is in the middle. Imagine that, except instead of a round circular knob, it's a gun. 
and it's just sticking out the shield. They had a little grate, like one of those little um, a mesh grate that was on uh, the, the, the top of the shield that you'd be able to look out to see the other side. And of course, the idea at this time is guns don't fire very quickly. They need to be able to protect it. So we're going to put a gun and a shield together, and that way the user will be safe. It'll be fine. It'll be awesome. Problem was, this was a steel shield over a wooden shield with a gun and mechanical parts and all this other stuff in it. The shield's weight, I think it was anywhere between like 20 to 30 pounds each. Can you imagine carrying a 30 pound shield that you are trying to hold up level and block? We're not talking a machine gun that you're able to kind of hold down low and just spray and pray in a direction like you might see for someone who's holding a, uh, you know, non-mounted browning or something. We're, we're talking a thing that you were trying to hold up to your shoulder with a massive metal shield in front of it and try to aim with that shit. <laughs> The, the, yeah, the, not super effective. No, not at all. And once you fired, admittedly, a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's going to be, you know, you have to lower the shield because then you have to reload. No, these shields were innovative enough that they had they were breech loading mechanisms. But because of the complexity of it, like with the Kaltoff, if anything broke, if anything happened to it, they wouldn't be able to fix it. You had to send it back to a specialist to be able to do anything with it. And and on top of that, because of how you had to hold it, this meant, well, you're not going to be able to really see the battlefield. And you, you the moment you lower it to try to reload or do anything with it, you can't brace it with one hand to reload the breach. You're going to have to lower it down anyway in order to to do it. The only way that it worked was in two select scenarios. The first sieges because when you have it mounted to a castle wall and you're protected that's fine you can brace it on the stone and that allows you to fire the other way and this is where it was really being used that's why they discovered it is that these shields were being slapped onto the sides of ships so when you were getting close for a boarding action you would have this gun shield that is propped up on the side of the railing like on the side and as you get close you're protected from anyone that's firing crossbows or arrows or guns at you but now you have a shield gun pointing in their direction that you can just fire that that one scenario think of it like um you know the swivel guns yep they basically turned it into a shielded swivel gun but it just wasn't wasn't practical right huh no honestly uh, are that's you, are, are you familiar with a micklick no at least not based off the initial name uh i'm sure you've seen them before it's it's a uh american military uses it like combat engineers use it uh they come in like a tank mobile format or they come in like a trailer that you can pull behind a vehicle how do you spell it m-i-k-l-i-k and it's basically like a 300 foot long rope made out of c4 with like a giant spear and it fires and it just takes this rope made out of c4 with it and then you can detonate it and just blow up a whole road no i've seen them um i've seen video footage this is what they've used to clear out mined positions in the middle east route clearance yeah so i don't know if that's technically a weapon but i've I've always thought that that thing was just insanely 
Listen, there's there's so much potential for dumb shit with that weapon. If we're talking, if we're talking something like the uh, uh, what what am I? If we're going to talk about the Volkswagen Beetle and all of its uses, I'd say that this is ideal. This is perfect because it is. It's a valuable military tool for some things that people did. Right. That is that is nice. (sighs) Honestly, at this point, I would love to go through more. But it's currently 85 degrees in my garage. I am sweating my ass off. And I think that it is time to finish things up here for today. Uh, Nick, do you have anything else that you would like to add? Maybe plug in your own stuff for your own merch or anything like that? Uh, Yeah, I'm about to hit a million on TikTok if you want to go follow me there. And then uh, follow me. Watch me on YouTube. They pay me better. Uh, All my links are available at thefatelectrician.com. And uh, yeah, I think that's all I got to plug. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day. And if there are any other fun things that you would like for myself or for Nick to look into, please do let us know. Uh, Check us out on our varying social medias, and I will see you all here next time. Please do remember to go to uh, historyofeverythingpodcast.com in order to provide the relatives like of, of stories of people that you may know or are related to that you'd like to tell their interesting history story. I hope to see you all again here next time. And you have a good rest of your day. Bye, guys. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.